very warm welcome to you from Equa Marketing. This presentation is brought to you by Equa.com, a leader in digital marketing. Hello everyone, welcome to another amazing episode of the Growing Dentist podcast show. Today I'm super excited to have Mike McCullough, who is the um, who is an author and um, has written several books. Um, I, I'm going to let Mike introduce himself. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. And Noreen, also thanks. tell us about your, your number one book. Sure, sure. So, Noreen, thanks for having me on the show. Um, and, yeah, so I'm an author of small business books. And, and my mission as I write my books is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Uh, my, and my goal with my books is to make a compendium of books that help entrepreneurs. So I've written everything from books that help a business grow organically and quickly. I wrote a book called The Pumpkin Plan about that. Uh, I wrote a book called Surge, Catching the Momentum in a Market. But my most popular book currently is a book called Profit First. And what I discovered in my own, and I'm an entrepreneur too, by the way. I've, I've owned and sold companies. I operate uh, two companies now. I'm a co-owner in a manufacturing business. I have a membership organization. But um, what I found in my own businesses in the past is that I didn't understand profitability. So I would speak with my accountant or bookkeeper. They would run me through all the accounting sheets, the profit and loss statement, the balance sheet, and so forth. But I noticed my tendency was always to revert to what I call bank balance accounting, logging into my bank account, seeing how much money is there. Based on how much money I saw, I would make decisions. And my accountant and bookkeeper would would scream at me, stop doing that. You know, read your read the accounting sheets to know where your business is, run it off your accounting documents, but I never did. So what I realized is I was the only person that does that, but most entrepreneurs, in fact, that I know, run their balance by looking or running their business by looking at the bank balance. Do they have money or not have money? So what I did with Profit First is I created a system where that behavior of logging to your bank account now becomes your biggest ally. The, the, the rule with behavioral kind of modifications, this, if we have to change who we are, it's very hard. If we can instead set up systems that work with how we already behave, that works to our advantage. So the concept that I discuss in Profit First and what I help business with is saying to the entrepreneur, don't change what you're doing. Let's simply set up a system that works with how you already behave and ensures that you're profitable. That's awesome. So let's go. I like to dig deep. So let me kind of um, talk about um, you are painful lessons because sometimes, unfortunately, uh, the best lessons are come from a lot of pain. So, tell us about your story and and, and kind of what are the common mistakes you made as an entrepreneur, uh, where you did not know how to optimize for profit first. Yeah. So my grand mistake was uh, I, I sold my first company to private equity and made some money. My second company, I sold it to a Fortune 500 and made a lot of money. And what happened is when I sold my second company, my ego just exploded because I was convinced I had the mightiest touch. Two businesses that in a row and both of them sold. And I also believe that profit was in fact the bottom line. And that's the formula we've all been told. You take your sales, subtract your expenses, what's left over is profit. So I thought profit was the bottom line, meaning the the eventuality, the the leftover. It would happen in the future. I just got to build toward it. So after doing uh, this twice, I said, well, I'm going to become an angel investor. I was the worst angel investor of 
Guggenheim, I now call myself the angel of death, uh, because I started 10 companies uh, with all with the intention to build them quickly and sell them. That's where I'd make my money, and all of them failed. What I came to realize that that profit is not an event. It's a habit. It needs to be baked into the business. But what triggered that recognition was my darkest moment was after I started these 10 companies, they all failed. I also blew my money on cars and, and a big house and all this stuff. I, I tore through all that money and it took me less than two years to blow everything. I, uh, I banked, my accountant called me and said, Mike, you, you got to declare bankruptcy. You're done. Uh, I never did. My ego wouldn't allow that. I felt obligated to pay off the debts I had, but I also felt obligated to find a new system. And so what I did for myself was simply flip the formula. That formula of sales minus expenses equals profit is a lie in regards to about 83% of businesses. This is according to an SBA study. 83% of businesses run check by check. 83% of small businesses uh, aren't ever profitable. They wait till year end. There's nothing there. And they say, well, maybe next year. And it's this constant check to check, head barely above water survival. So what all I did literally was just flip the formula. So sales minus expenses equals profit. In actuality, does not result in profit. The new formula that I use is sales minus profit equals expenses, a.k.a. profit comes first. And while this may seem like a shell game, I mean, I'm just moving variables. Logically, mathematically, it's the same stuff. Behaviorally, it's a radical change. In, in execution, every time my business has revenue come in, I mean, Every time there's a deposit, I immediately take a predetermined percentage and allocate it to a profit. I transfer that money literally into a profit account at my bank, and the money sits there. So by taking my profit first, I'm now forced to run my business healthily and responsibly to assure that that profit that I'm taking can be taken. It's a real simple modification in the formula, but the impact on our behavior is extraordinary. Right. Can you give me an example? So give me a real world example of how, 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 how do you do that? I'm just trying to, I know it yeah. sounds so simple that, you know, like yeah. I want people to get it, you know, an example I think. Of course. Help. So let me give you kind of the proof that this works and I'll give you an example. Um, this is a, a similar or analogy. The greatest savings mechanism in U.S. history has been the 401k. Um, if you look at people's personal savings, the greatest savings mechanism is the 401k. It's what's called a forced savings. So as an employee, if I participate in a 401k, or, you know, a retirement plan, the business automatically takes out my money first, the 401k contribution, and then when it pays a check to me, it's what's called the net check, not the gross, but the net. And I adjust my lifestyle to live off my net check because this is how much money I'm taking home. But the money's pulled aside first and uh, the money grows in the 401k. In business, we do the exact same thing. Say a $1,000 deposit comes in today to your business, to your dentist, dentistry uh, office. What we do then is we take out a predetermined percentage, let's say 10%. So $1,000 comes in, we take 10%, that's $100. We transfer that money into a bank account, a different bank account called profit. We store the money there. Now the business has to run off of a effectively a $900 deposit. And what happens is, kind of like that 401k, when you first implement this, there's a little bit of an abrupt change. It's like, oh, I don't have as much money 
to pay bills as I thought I did. And there's a golden lesson here. If you can't pay your bills when you take your profit first, if you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills. Meaning, your business, we are now intentionally taking profit first. We are defining what will make your business healthy, that 10% in profit. By taking it first, your business gives you direct feedback and says, well, you can't pay these other bills you have. So you have to cut expenses uh, or increase margins, meaning charge more for specific services, or usually it's a combination of the two. So in your business, $1,000 comes in, take a predetermined percentage, say 10%, allocate it toward profit, literally reserve that money away, run your business off the difference. And if you're struggling to run your business, you have to find more efficient ways, better ways to run your business, just like a 401k, but for the business itself. Right. I think I'm starting to understand it um, intellectually, um, um, you know, at least in a, in a real sense. So what happened to me is um, um, in 2008, after getting fired or 2002, after getting fired for four years in a row, I went into business on my own and uh, I didn't have any investors and I, I, I didn't have a lot of patience for, you know, pitching to people and selling people stuff. And it's for two reasons, because I didn't really know if what I'm about to do is going to work out. And I, I just felt kind of guilty asking people for money when I myself am not 100% sure it's going to work out, right? So it's one of those uh, things. And the second reason is they made me jump through hoops and presentations and documentation. And I'm like, forget it. I need to focus on the business. So to make a long story short, I tried to get a $25,000 loan, which is what they said I'm qualified for. And then even for that, they wanted this and that. And I said, forget it uh, from the bank. So I, I started using my own money to build my business. And I guess... The fact that I didn't have money was a blessing in disguise. Um, yeah. And today we have 200 people and it's all organic and, you know, and we can do whatever we want and we can grow and grow. And we became extremely efficient in how we do things. Uh, but now that we are successful, I think some of the bad habits you're talking about creeps in, you know, where... Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, because we don't have the same problem we had before, right? Which is every penny it, counted. It's a great... It's the greatest irony, but the less we have available to run our business, the more effective we are in the use of funds that we do have available. We become more innovative. Uh, we become more frugal. And there's a behavioral principle that, well, if our listeners know this, this is the, 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 probably the most important thing you can know around money management and so many other aspects of life. It's a concept called the Pareto, not the Pareto Principle, that's a different one. It's called Parkinson's Law. And Parkinson's Law uh, is the way we consume an available resource. So Parkinson was a theorist back in the 1950s. He's studying human behavior, and he discovers that it is human tendency that as a supply of a resource increases, that our consumption of that resource increases. For example, if I put a, you know, if you like a, a cookie for dessert or something, say if I put one cookie in front of you and you like that, chances are you'll have a cookie. If I put 15 cookies in front of you, chances are you'll have more than one cookie. You'll probably have two, three, four, maybe more. So greater supply, greater consumption. A, a business example is if you and I are negotiating, say, a project, and uh, you say, Mike, I'll, I'll get you the proposal in a week, you'll probably get to me in a week. You said that much time. Conversely, if the same people, you and I are having the same conversation about the same project, but you say, I'll get to you in one day, you likely will get to me in a day. So you compress the availability of time, you use less time. But with money, it's the exact same way. If, if we put a large 
plate of money or sum of money in front of our business, that one income account, all the money that's there, we see that $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever the money is sitting there, our mind says, okay, I have $10,000 to run my business, which means pay bills, spend, and so forth. If we simply remove a portion of that money first and intentionally provide our business with less money, we'll look at it and say, okay, I have $4,000 for my business or three. And we do this naturally when the money doesn't flow in. You didn't have the money, so you have to become innovative, efficient. Right. You know? But now, as money expands, that deadens and we go to the obvious. So what we're doing is intentionally, quote, unquote, crippling our financial cash flow to go back to that behavior that is automatic within us. Lack of money means innovative thinking, out-of-the-box strategies, frugality, and we accomplish greater results. The, the, the greatest irony, and the last thing I want to share, the greatest irony is we now have about 30,000 companies that we know of doing profit first. Um, we have 2,000 case studies. Of the companies doing profit first, the ones who take the profit first grow faster than their industry competition. And at first, that kind of blew me away. I'm like, that makes no sense because we are all told it takes money to grow. You must invest in your business, of course. But what we found as we're doing these studies is that when businesses intentionally take their profit first, fuel their business with less money, they have to become innovative. And the businesses that are innovative challenge the industry standards, and the people who challenge the industry standards become the great innovators, the, the new way of doing things, and start growing faster. Right, right. That's interesting. So um, can you give me some examples of real clients and, and or put yourself in the whole, like I want a sure. personal story. Tell me like how you did it and what happened. Like, I mean, it, I, because I'm trying to, I get it, but I just want to kind of, I, I'm, yeah, struggling yeah, no, with, I, I'm struggling with a few yeah. things, right? Business is yeah, sh- so many pieces. You have payroll, you have, you know, IT, you have all these pieces. So how do you, I, like maybe I'm overthinking this, but you know, just help help me get some color. Yeah, so I'll share my story, and I have a lot of client cases I can share too. But my own story, when I implemented uh, Profit First in my own business, we're a membership organization. Uh, we have we call it the ABCs: accountants, bookkeepers, and coaches, uh, as members of our organization. We help them grow their businesses. And what I did was I intentionally took a percentage of money for profit first, just as I shared. And by the way, um, in my book, I don't explain it's only profit. We also reserve money for the, to pay the owners of the business. Inevitably, the worst paid uh, employee in the business is the owner operator, the person that owns the business and works in the business, usually the lowest paid. Um, I talk about managing taxes this way too and other things. But what I did is I started allocating money to a profit. Well, the first thing to grow a membership organization is everyone knows you have to advertise, you have to uh, you know run Facebook ads, you have to have an, an amazing website, uh, you got to be running Google ads, you got to get the word out. And when I said that when everyone knows, I put big air quotes around that. That's the industry norm. Well, when I took my profit first, I literally had to to achieve and sustain that profitability. I had no money for advertising, so I said, well, if I can't advertise. How, how am I ever going to get business? And that actually launched a speaking platform. I said, huh, I can, and my team now, can go and do speaking uh, to accountants, bookkeepers, and coaches and get clientele that way. And if we do it right, we get paid for it. And this is the greatest irony. 
I just went to a, and I'll be going again, I go twice a year to a conference for companies that have membership organizations. They always talk, what is the average cost of a lead? You know, oh, I spend $50. That's my average cost of a lead. Oh, I spend 25 We net over $100 income on a lead. And people are like, what? How can you do that? I said, well, I, I never, I, I didn't allow myself to have money for advertising because I allocated every dollar toward a profit first, a percentage. So I had to find a new way. And I found that by speaking and getting paid to speak, that I actually get more leads. I'm seen as more credible because I don't have to run an ad. And I'm actually getting paid. So that was one significant perspective change that I would have never considered, quite frankly, if I didn't take my profit first. Yes. I said, uh, oh. give me more. I love these things. Oh. Can you um, give me more examples of how this forced you to come up with creative and innovative ways of doing things? Yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me share a story. This is my favorite story. So one of our clients, uh, someone who, who adopted Profit First, uh, because I was just down there to visit this company, the baseball team, actually. And uh, the team's called the Savannah Bananas. <laughs> they're in Savannah, Georgia. And they're a minor league baseball team. And I got a letter in the mail from them about a year ago. And inside the letter was a baseball card of the business owner, uh, Jesse Coles, his name. And on the back of his baseball card, it said, we've turned around our entire baseball team with Profit First. So, of course, this intrigued me. I immediately called him. I subsequently interviewed him and uh, learned that this team was in debt over a million dollars, which actually is kind of normal if you own a baseball team in the minor leagues. They don't make money. That's the rule. You do it as a hobby. Uh, if you're a wealthy individual and you want to have fun, yeah, you buy a baseball team. So then what, um, what he did was he started taking his profit first and said, well, clearly the way we run business runs up debt, and if we take any kind of profit, it'll put us out of business. So he had to start considering all his costs. One of the most, one of the more expensive things that a uh, baseball team has is actually the ticketing system. The point of sale system is expensive to get a ticketing system, but they also, the point of sale systems charge you a percentage of the ticket fee. So they were paying a 15% override on every ticket they sold right to the point of sale system company. Well, he realized that he was it was costing him say 150 or 200,000 dollars a year to run this ticketing system. So what he did is he took $10,000 and he made old tickets like like the old baseball games where you get a physical printed ticket and he made them in the shape of a banana and they got them laminated all for $10,000 and he got I don't know 50,000 tickets which fills the season. And now he cut the cost by literally 150,000 130,000 I mean a huge cost savings but those tickets are a souvenir people buy the tickets and then they start pinning them up on their walls just like old rock concert tickets or something like that so it's become great marketing you see them on twitter and facebook all the time he's also and that's just one innovation he's come up with hundreds of innovations he today uh well just just about two weeks ago, I was actually invited down. I threw out the open pitch at a Savannah's Bananas baseball game. There was uh, 4,000 or 5,000 people in the stands. The stands can only seat 5,000. They are sold out every game of the season. The first minor league team, I think in the world, definitely in their league, but we think in the world that's ever sold out every game uh, for multiple seasons. It's their second season doing profit first, and again, every game is sold out. So it, it forces us to get back to our roots of innovation and out-of-the-box thinking.
Right. Because it's like, you know, it's like um, you don't have, like, I mean, if you look at all these venture backed companies, I mean, you have been in the space, they get hundreds of millions and most of them blow it all away, you know, in the name of to acquire a client for $10, they'll spend $100 and the numbers don't add up and then they yes. go bankrupt. Yes, it's so true. It's so true. The thing called the, uh, the loss effect um, and what this is, or loss aversion effect is more commonly referred to, is uh, as I was learning and studying and preparing my book for Profit First, I was studying behavioral phenomena. And another behavioral tendency is once we possess something, we will make more effort to retain it than to actually gain the equivalent thing. The example is, if you have a car that you, you know, that you own, and uh, the leaseholder or the bank loan holder comes to you and says, we're going to repossess your car if you don't make a car payment within the next few days, we will typically go through extraordinary efforts to make that payment. I'll take a part-time job with Lyft or Uber or something just to cover that car payment. Now, here's the irony. I could today, without that request for me to make that payment immediately, I could today go to Uber or Lyft and get a part-time job so I could buy a nicer car. I could make that extraordinary effort now to gain the next level. But we're actually less motivated to gain something new that we don't possess as we are to retain what we already possess. So what happens with money, which you just pointed out, Noreen, it's crazy, is if I owe money to someone else, um, like maybe my tax bill, I will often go to extraordinary measures and spend more money elsewhere. I'll buy stuff, I'll do things and incur expenses to reduce my tax bill, meaning I'll spend $10 to save three. Logically, it makes no sense, but behaviorally, that's how we're wired. Clarify that for me. Um, I, I didn't catch that totally. Like, you know, give me an example. So, okay. So an example, I'll, I'll kind of look at the taxes one more time, and then we'll look at something else. When, when tax day comes on April 15th, uh, you know, the folks listening into this interview may say, oh, that's when my tax bill comes. Your accountant comes back to you and says, you know, you owe whatever, $15,000 in additional taxes this year. Then we'll look at our accountant, get all upset and say, well, why, you know, why do I owe more money? I've paid so much already. That's actually uh, one indicator of loss aversion that we, we start placing blame or we feel that we're being taken advantage of. That's a classic loss aversion. Then what we do, we say, if I owe 15000 what can I do not to pay that tax bill? And the accountants are trained saying, well, you can incur more expenses. What can we spend, literally, what can we spend money on? Do you need that new dental machine, that new you know, uh, x-ray system that just came out? It, it costs $50,000, and if we spend $50,000, that'll cut down our tax liability to only $3,000. And we say, okay, I can use that machine. So literally, we buy a $50,000, say, x-ray machine. Our tax bill drops from 15 to 3. So we spent 50000 to save 12000 it, it makes no sense, but we justify. We say, well, that, that x-ray machine will, will make up for itself. We, you know, I, I can use it. And so now this thing, we're trying to figure out ways to use it, and it sits there idle. So we literally blow money to save a small portion. Loss aversion, loss aversion causes this illogical you know, consideration of cost. Sorry to cut you off there. Yes, I, I had I had an example to piggyback on what you said. Like, you know, let's say um, bankers sometimes would come and pitch to me saying, 
why don't you take a loan because you can write it off on your taxes? But right. I'm thinking, you know, I still have to pay you more in interest <laughs> yeah. than what I get to write off. So still I'm losing money. You know, if I don't need the loan, why am I taking a loan? But I think right. the system is wired in such a way where, like, I'm not blaming the bankers, but I mean, they kind of play to these instincts people have. They, oh, they totally do. But, they, but that's, how they, that's how they make their living. I mean, I'm not saying it's morally right, but it is economically right for the banker. If I can get you borrowing money, I, that's how I make my money. And right. they do know the triggers. You know, another behavioral tendency is we will look for immediate gratification. So if I can avoid something that's painful right now, uh, you know, I don't have enough money to buy something, I can't cover payroll, or whatever the challenge is, I'll look for an immediate gratification. Oh, that loan fixes my problem now. And we put a tremendous weight on alleviating the pain, but we don't think about the future pain, that interest rate. So while right now we feel immediate relief, a month from now when that first bill is due, we're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to start paying these bills? And the pain builds. So it, it is a true dilemma. It is also human nature. And then what we do is we have all this extra money sitting in the bank and we go buy something we don't really need. Maybe that extra car or maybe that extra renovation. And now... That's exactly what happens. Right. That's very, very interesting. And I, I love the fact that you also share an example about eating, right? If you have one cookie, you will eat one cookie. If you have 10, you're going to eat four. Yes. Yeah, so that, that's Parkinson's law. And once you understand this, if you intentionally reduce the supply, I mean, you only serve that one cookie, you're putting a guardrail around yourself. You, you just can't eat more. Now, this is part of the key to profit first. Um, when we allocate money toward our profit first, when we have that $1,000 deposit come in, we take that 10%, the $100. If that money is accessible, um, it will still be a problem. It's like me saying, okay, Noreen, here's one cookie I put in front of you. And, oh, by the way, the other 10, I'm going to put in the cupboard over there. It's still accessible. It's not immediately in front of you, but still accessible. The only way I can guarantee you won't eat more cookies is if I take those 10 other cookies and I throw them in the garbage, or they're only available at the food store down the street. You actually have to go out to buy them. If I make it extremely hard or at least not convenient to, to get, we'll just consume what's in front of us. So with the profit account, when we allocate money to profit, to ensure that we don't quote-unquote borrow, which means steal, from ourselves, we transfer the money to a second bank, and the rule of that second bank is you don't want any convenience options. No ATM card no online banking, uh, no starter checks. Get the money to that second bank, deposit only, and make it inaccessible. The only time you withdraw profit is when it's a true profit distribution. And what I mean by that, a profit distribution is a reward mechanism. Like if you own public stock and your public company, say it's Ford, sends you a check as a profit distribution, None of us say, oh, I'm just going to refund it back to Ford. The management team can grow Ford more if I plow this back in. We're an equity owner in Ford, therefore we don't return the money. When our business distributes a profit to us, uh, we are an equity owner in our business. We are not to plow it back in or push it back into the business. When that money comes out, that profit comes out, we use it for one purpose, 
to celebrate. And you define celebration. It's for you, though. It's never to be reinvested. Maybe you go on a vacation uh, for your family. Maybe you buy yourself something. Maybe you put it into your own personal retirement savings because you're rewarding yourself for the future, but you never put it back in the business. Right, right. That's, that's a great point. How can this apply for personal finances? Because I know a lot of dentists or doctors, for example, you know, they make a lot of money, but their expenses are crazy too. And yeah. um, I was talking to somebody who said uh, when they come out of uh, school or when they're actually working the first few years, you know, before they, you know, like, like uh, you know, as part of getting their, you know, full certification and so forth, you know, they usually make thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. But then two years later, they're spending $150,000. So the same person who lived for $30,000 is now living for $150,000. So how can yeah. this apply in, in personal money management? Yeah, so it applies right over. It's uh, also, again, realize this is Parkinson's law. It can either work to your advantage or it can work to your disadvantage. If you increase the supply, our consumption automatically increases. That's our behavioral tendency. So what we're saying is you started off with 30,000, one cookie in your personal life. Now we put 15 cookies in front of you, 100,000 or whatever the number is, and our life expands, our consumption expands. So you implement this exact same strategy in your personal finances. I had the same situation. I got my business in check. I was taking my profit first. My business was running efficiently. I was taking more home. I was grateful for that. But then I noticed, oh, I was buying the fancy stuff again. Um, and by the way, I found that no one in the world really cares about that. When I drove down the street in my Toyota versus my you know, Mercedes, no one really noticed except for my ego. Right. So really, spending money is often simple an internal ego driver. Uh, and I'm not saying it's necessarily even a bad thing. It's just it's human nature. But what I did do was I implemented these different accounts at my personal bank. So I set up a retirement account. I set up a vacation account. I set up an emergency fund account. I set up my children's education account. And yeah, I use savings mechanisms like a 529 and so forth. But every time money comes into my personal account for my business, I call that personal income. Then I divide up based upon percentages all my money. So say $1,000 comes into my personal account. I put 10%, that's 100 bucks, into my emergency fund. It's just growing and growing. I'll never touch that unless there's an emergency. Another 15% goes into our vacation fund. We're, ironically, we're going on vacation next week, me and my family. We paid cash for the entire thing in advance, and we're sitting on a lot of additional cash to have a great time on this vacation. Not a single credit card is going to be used or ever going to be used. It's all been allocated for in advance. I have an automobile fund. So I have $200 going in there. Uh, I shouldn't say 200 another 10%, but it's around $200 every week that goes in there. So money's piling up, and the next car I'm going to purchase, again, will be a cash purchase. Uh, and then this is true for my mortgage. All my responsibilities are allocated into these different accounts or envelopes, as I call them at times. Uh, in advance. And the beautiful thing here is when you pre-allocate money to its purpose, then you know what the purpose is. This, by the way, the reason I call them envelopes, this is the envelope system. This is a system that I didn't invent. This has been around for, for centuries. There's a book called The Richest Man in Babylon that's dedicated to this concept. Think and Grow Rich talks about the envelope system. And what we do, again, is we pre-allocate money to its purpose. Then you live within the money that's available in that fund. In my 
automobile count, if I have enough money to buy a Mercedes, then hell yeah, I will go out and buy a Mercedes. But I will never, if that's what I so desire, I will never go outside of that account to buy something because that means I'm starting to live beyond my means. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, right. So let's go back to the business for a minute. So you have you make so much money, you take the profit out. Do you just like you allocating for your purpose? Do you allocate for the purpose in the business? Like, for example, this is my budget for marketing or this is my budget for buying equipment. Yep, I do. I do. So uh, we actually have five basic accounts when we get a business started five starting or basic accounts. And as the business grows into Profit First, they open more accounts. Most businesses that implement Profit First ultimately have maybe 10 or 12 accounts. You know, you can, you can literally do it for every single individual purpose, but then it becomes an administrative nightmare. 10 to 12 accounts max is good. But when getting started, start with a few. Start with less and build into it. But it, you're absolutely correct. Uh, if a business is heavy on inventory, for example, we'll have one account that's the operating expense account, but another account that's dedicated specifically to inventory. Um, you know, you may have a payroll account for your employees. So we just look at the significant expenses that w we know we'll be spending money on and set up unique accounts for them. The less insignificant stuff, office supplies, electricity, utilities, that can be all blended into an operating expense account. It's just the big, chunky things that we set up separate accounts for. Right. Now, what happens if you want to save more than 10%? Do you increase it? Like, Because what I'm assuming is you're going to get smarter and smarter yes. and smarter. Yes. Yes. And the, your observation is extremely smart. That's exactly what we do. 10%, I'm not saying is even the right number to start with. Um, in, my, in my book, Profit First, I actually did a study of 1,000 companies that are what we call the fiscally elite, financially extremely healthy companies, and documented what their allocations are. So you have some guidelines of where you can move toward. The lesson, though, is this. Never start at the end goal. Don't start off by saying, oh, I, I think I can do 30% profit when historically you've been break even. It's too abrupt of a change. So what you do is you start off small. If you've never been historically profitable, even 10% may be too much. Let's start at two or three. Go for one quarter, that's 90 days, then make an adjustment of another 2% up. So you go from three to five, then go to another quarter, see if you can go to 10. And once you get to 10 and you're comfortable there, let's, let's go to 12, 15, 20. There's companies, not, this is not typical, but there's companies doing 65% profit. Um, there's dentists that do 20, 30% profit, but we have to build toward it. If we go right into it, it's going to be too abrupt of a shift. Right. On the logistical side, right? Each, is each account going to cost me stuff? I know a lot of people will think of all these reasons why not to do something. Yes. Yeah. So I'll tell you the, the common resistance. That is the most common. People say, but the fees. First of all, um, when you set multiple accounts, go to your bank and say, I'm not willing to pay fees. Uh, what can you do for me? That's called negotiation. Many banks will negotiate. If your bank says, uh, if you say, I'm saying more accounts so I can move money around more, and they say, well, we're not willing, we're going to charge you fees, we're not willing to adjust, that's not a bank I'd want to do business with. I would find a new bank. If, you, if your bank is not willing to work with you, banks to consider are Federal credit unions I found to be amazing. Local banks, meaning town or regional banks, are awesome too. There's some couple of national ones. Um, Capital One, uh, for example, is a really good one. So there's banks out there that do it. 
the other resistance I get from people, they say, but Mike, you're telling me to start taking my profit first. I've never been profitable. I need to be profitable first before I can allocate money here. And that's looking at this backwards. What we have to understand is if you've never been profitable, you've been living the 15-cookie version of Parkinson's law. As your income's increased, you've expanded your spend in your business. We have to curtail that immediately by taking our profit first. It'll force our make our business to run more reasonably and more appropriately. Those are the two common forms of resistance I get, and that's how I address. What about the accountants? Won't they say, well, I need to pay my accountant more because they have all these accounts, I mean, accountant, a bookkeeper, because all these accounts to deal with? Yeah, so uh, the additional administrative time is negligible to none because all we're doing is separating out accounts. We're not, we're not doing more bank transactions. We're not, uh, we are transferring money, right, from one account to the other, but we're not writing more checks out. Uh, it actually, all of our checks are now coming out of an operating expense account as opposed to the other checking account, so it brings some clarity. So when it comes to reconciling, that's what people are afraid of. You know, I've got to do all this administration. It's very negligible uh, in regards to additional time. So I'd be shocked if your accountant or bookkeeper, once they're doing this, spends any more time on this. Therefore, they shouldn't charge you a penny more. Right. Now, in terms of these um, individual accounts, so if, if I want to buy, um, I'm just getting into the details here. If I want to buy an equipment and I have an equipment account, right? So would I just transfer money from that account to the, the company that I, I'm going to buy the equipment from? Or how would that yeah, work? Yeah, you could do it logistically. Or if you have one account where you pay bills out of, right when you make that purchase, you transfer the money out of the equipment account to that purchasing account, that checking account, and then the, the account goes through. But the rule is you look at that purchasing of the equipment account. If there's not enough money in there, that's your business telling you it's not ready yet. And we've got to get innovative again. What can we do to work with our current equipment that much longer? Yeah. I just want to, one final thought. Like a lot of times people do the exact opposite. They buy this thing they don't need for $150,000, this big equipment. Now they figure out how to make money from it. It's yeah. just, it's just exactly. the opposite of what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, and, and by the way, that's called the dog wagging the tail, meaning, <laughs> meaning. I'm sorry, not the dog wagging the tail. I'm, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. That's the tail wagging the dog. That's what I meant to say. The right. tail wagging the dog. That's where we're being led by our expenses. Our expenses now are controlling how we run our business. Oh my God, we spent a lot of money there. I need this to to turn around for me. That's totally the wrong way to run our business. We want profit to drive our business. What is the profitable parts of our business? When we start taking our profit first, now the dog wags the tail, not the tail wagging the dog. Right. Right. Any final thoughts? I loved every minute of our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Me too. Final thoughts this. Uh, I, you know, I've spoke with now, I can't even count how many people. I literally returned from a speaking engagement yesterday on Profit First, and I'm, I'm heading out of the country to speak on it again. And here's my point of frustration for the longest time. I would teach Profit First, I come back to the same people, and they weren't doing it. And I would get frustrated, like, this, this fixes your business. I promise you, why aren't you doing this? And I found out that I was leaving out one final part, so I'll share that now, is we need to start slowly. All of us have been told to raise the bar, you know, set a BHAG, uh, grow your business bigger and better, uh, shoot for the stars. And what I found is when we set a big parameter, like, I'm going to start with 10% profit or 20, um, that it's actually too burdensome. And then when it fails for us, we say, ah, the system doesn't work for me. 
what, that's not true. We just went in too fast. It's like going to the gym, and if you if you haven't ever lifted weight before, you try bench pressing, you know, 300 pounds, you rip every muscle. You say clearly, working out at gyms is not good. No, you went in too intensely. So what we want to do is, in fact, lower the bar. What we do here is today, everyone listening right now, every dentist, every doctor listening right now can call their bank or have their assistant call the bank, set up a checking account, re-nickname it to profit. That's step one. I mean, set up a checking account and nickname it profit. Step two, allocate only 1% of profit. Because if you've never done this before, if you allocate 1% of profit, it won't hurt your business. If $1,000 comes in, I'm saying take $10 and move it to your profit account. Because if you can run your business off a $1,000 deposit, you can run off 990 It's negligible. But what will happen is with money in your profit account, you'll start, you won't get rich, but you'll start getting rich in confidence. You'll realize that, hey, I can pre-allocate money toward profit. And then next quarter or next month or whenever you're ready, move it to two, then move it to three and build that momentum. Lower the bar, start slow, but start Start at a point where you you have no excuse not to get started. And I gave you the way to do it. Do it today. Awesome. How can somebody get a hold of you or learn more about you or kind of, um, you know, buy your books, you know, anything at all? Oh, thank you. Yeah, on Google, just type in profit. If you want to learn about profit first, just type in profit first. Uh, every page in Google, every link that will come up on the first page of Google, that will lead you to one of my profit first resources. My name again is Mike Michalowicz. If you want to visit my website, I know Michalowicz is the hardest name to spell. So I'll give you two quick shortcuts. Go on Google, type in my first name, which is Mike, M-I-K-E, spacebar, Mick, M-I-C. And once you get there, the longest, most Polish name ever, that's me. Just pick from that one. I'll bring it to my site. But if that's too much, another shortcut, my nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. You can just type in MikeMotorbike.com. That'll bring it to my site. All my books are up there, free resources, everything you need to get started. This is amazing, Mike. I really enjoyed our chat today. And I yeah, want to thank too. you on behalf of all of our listeners for taking the time and, and you know, pretty much sharing what you perhaps learned in years and years of pain and suffering in like in, in, in 45 minutes. <laughs> thank you, brother. I appreciate you, Noreen. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another amazing episode of Growing Dentist Podcast Show.